Hey guys, it's Cassie. I just wanted to let you know that at the end of this episode, there's an exclusive interview with Detective Sergeant Kaylee Shewitt. Stay tuned. Welcome to Cold Cases with Cassie, the podcast where we unravel the mysteries and the stories that remain etched in the sands of time. I'm your host, Cassie, and today we embark on a journey back to 1981 in Saline, Michigan. On the chilly fall morning of October 24th, 1981, two hunters headed their way to their usual hunting spot in Saline, Michigan. They strolled along a grassy area with the smell of autumn at the tips of their red noses as the colorful leaves crunched below their feet. Their peaceful morning soon turned somber as they trailed along, something caught their attention. It was a woman covered in blood lying motionless in the grass. It was apparent as they grew closer that their fears were confirmed. The woman had succumbed to her injuries. Not even a glimmer of hope was granted due to the state of her decomposing body. The hunters frantically ran to the nearest phone and immediately dialed the Saline Police Department, setting in motion a heavy investigation. The tension in the air was apparent as the police cautiously approached the scene. There, in the cold, wet grass, lied the body of 29-year-old Mary Alice Hedgelin Ellicott, beaten, stabbed, and left to rot in a field. A brutal and tragic ending to a vibrant young woman's life. Mary graced this world on April 8th of 1952 She was the second of four children of Alice and Richard Hedgelin. Mary, being the only daughter, developed a resilience thanks to her brothers Michael, Patrick, and Timothy. Mary was blessed with striking dark brown hair and beautiful brown eyes, which contrasted nicely with her porcelain skin. She was considered very petite in stature, her height only about five feet. Although she was small, she was tough. Yet many people who knew her said Mary would never even hurt a fly. But among those that knew Mary well, her honesty stood out as her most remarkable trait. Alongside this was her unique way of connecting with children, painting a beautiful warm picture of a woman who lost her life far too soon. The Hedgelands were born in Ohio, but soon after moved to grow up in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, the automobile capital of the world, and in the 60s, it was known for its unique Motown music. In her younger years, Mary was an active member in both the Brownies and the Girl Scouts, giving Mary a sense of community and adventure. As she grew, she was eventually sent to an all-girls Catholic school in Detroit called Regina High School. Mary and her brothers all grew up attending Catholic school. And around this time, in 1967, Mary's parents decided to get a divorce despite the possible scrutiny by their Catholic faith. Mary, feeling fed up with the authority of the nuns, made the decision to transfer to a public school in Detroit called Denby High School. Much like many of the kids in the 60s and 70s, 
Mary would gather with friends and get high off of marijuana and potentially other drugs that were always available during that time. Mary eventually went on and graduated from Denby High School in 1970. She never decided to go to college after school, although her family thought she was very intelligent and extremely capable, but maybe was lacking in self-confidence or maybe hadn't found a passion she wanted to pursue. In the mid to late 1970s, Mary got involved with a guy named Brian Ellicott. The information surrounding Brian is also limited, but what we do know is that he was three years older than Mary. We also know that much like her father and brothers, Brian too served in the U.S. Army. It was not surprising to me that Mary had found herself with someone who served for our country considering she grew up in a very proud military family. At some point, Mary and Brian got married, but it seems like not long after, they split. I wish I knew more about Brian and Mary's relationship, but what I do know is that it was believed that Brian was abusive towards Mary. This is what led to their divorce, which was finalized in June of 1981. The finalization happened when Mary didn't respond to the divorce petition. It is unknown on how or why this happened, but I'm assuming that Mary wanted out of the marriage. It could have been lack of trying on Brian's part, or maybe Mary was intentionally avoiding being found by Brian. I think Brian and Mary were split before their actual divorce because the research shows she moved in 1979 to Chelsea, Michigan to live with her mother and her mother's new husband and his children. This was a short-term living situation until Mary ended up meeting another boyfriend soon after and moved in with him in the fall of 1980. This man was allegedly thoroughly interviewed and had a strong alibi at the time. The relationship ended and Mary then moved out to her own apartment in Celine in the spring of 1981. Celine got its name from its salt harvesting done by the Native Americans and French settlers dating all the way back to the 18th century. The local river was nicknamed Saline or Salty. Nestled amongst the plentiful farmland in Saline was a small-town bar called the Polar Bear Bar. Although it's now renamed the Thompson Bar and Grill, it is still the same but renovated structure as it stood back in 1981. This is where Mary decided to apply to be a bartender. Without much deliberation, she was hired. It wasn't long after her initial employment that she struck up a casual relationship with one of the owners of the bar named Fred. After the once amicable relationship turned violent, Mary and Fred broke up, leaving Mary no choice but to leave her position at the Polar Bear Bar. Maybe only a week after their breakup, Mary revisited the Polar Bear Bar on October 11th. It is unknown why Mary may have visited the bar that day, but I think it's possible she could have been picking up a paycheck or visiting with her old co-workers. She was last seen leaving around 6 or 7 p.m. on that day. Little did they know that was the last time Mary was seen alive. Mary was reported missing by a friend three days later on October 14th. Her car remained parked in the same spot at the Polar Bear Bar where it had now been parked for days, adding an eerie mystery to her sudden disappearance. 
For 13 days, Mary's family and friends were consumed with anxiety over Mary's whereabouts. After days of what seemed like unrelenting torture, their worst nightmare came true. On October 24th, Mary's body was found only about a mile and a half from where she was last seen. She had been beaten, stabbed, and left in a grassy field. It was two hunters that found her and contacted the Saline Police Department. The case was at some point transferred to the Michigan State Police. Between the two departments, there were countless conducted interviews and polygraph tests administered. Many leads that were followed, but unfortunately with no avail. For almost 43 years, Mary's case remains a compelling, mysterious, and tragic unsolved case. Within the last month before Mary's unfortunate fate, she was pulled over for a DUI, painting a picture of a woman who was suffering from alcohol abuse. I hate this part of my job. I hate having to tell facts about a case that would potentially leave room for judgment. Mary may have struggled with alcohol abuse, but to the people around her, she was so much more. Mary was considered kind, compassionate, outgoing, truthful, and an animal lover. She was a lover of music like rock and roll, country, and Detroit's typical Motown sound. She would drag her brother to concerts and blast Sonny and Cher. She was so much more than what she struggled with. She deserved better than to be killed and left in a field. She deserves justice. In March of 2020, the Michigan State Police and the School of Criminal Justice with Michigan State University re-examined this case. They are still working hard to get this case solved. If you know of anyone who knew Mary, a coworker, a friend, a relative, ask them to continue to talk about Mary and her case. If you or anyone you know have any information regarding Mary Alice Hedgelin Ellicott's murder, please contact the Michigan State Police at 517-522-4440. Even if you think it's just a rumor, or if you think they already know, it doesn't hurt to reach out anyways. Hey guys, it's Cassie, and I'm here with Detective Sergeant Kaylee Shewitt. All right, so um, you can go ahead and start off by saying your name, your title. Okay, yeah, my name is Kaylee Shewitt. I'm a detective sergeant with the Michigan State Police, and I work in our first district special investigation section. Awesome. How long have you been in law enforcement? Um, I'm coming up on eight years now. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so what led you to this point in your career? Yeah, so I started my career at the Brighton Post. I was a trooper there for several years. And then a few years ago, I got promoted to a detective sergeant. And with that role, uh, some of us take on cold cases. So um, I recently took on a cold case, and here we are. That's very cool. I'm, like, honestly very jealous. Um, so what made you choose this career path? Yeah, so I went to Grand Valley State University to get my criminal justice degree, and there I realized 
Um, I was working a desk job throughout college and realized that's that's not what I want. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and the criminal justice classes, they they were so interesting. I had a lot of friends going into law enforcement. So that's that's really what led me is friends that were in the, the same program that I was in. Did you, so this isn't something you always knew you wanted to do? No, no, it, uh, my junior year in college is kind of when I made that choice. It was a spur of the moment. I've got no family in law enforcement, so uh, quite a shock to the, the family and friends that I had. What, like, what did you want to do, like, before? I, all the, all the random, you know, be a veterinarian, maybe be a social worker, all the, the paths that everyone thinks of, and, you know. Very cool. So obviously we're here today to talk about Mary Alice. I'm gonna say Hedgeland Ellicott because I feel like she definitely only went by Ellicott for like a short period of her life. So um, you have been working on her case. Yeah. And how long have you been working on her case? I've been working on her case for about a year now. Okay, that's very cool. So did Mary quit her job at the bar or was she fired? Because I feel like I wasn't clear on what happened there. Yeah, so she quit her job um, shortly before she went missing. Okay, do you know, like, how long? I believe the reports say around a week. Okay, that's what I, okay, Mm -hmm. I was under that impression as well. Do you know anything about Mary's whereabouts before she went to the bar that day? Like, did she have anything happen before she went to the bar? Uh, She stayed the night at a friend's house the night before um, and then left that morning. Was it a, like, a girlfriend's house or, like, a boyfriend's house? A girlfriend's house. A girlfriend's house. Okay. Very cool. Um, Okay. So, because she did have her own apartment. She did. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what she was doing at the bar that day? You know, I don't know exactly why she was there, but um, she used to work there, and it seemed like she was a frequent at the bar, hanging out with friends or coworkers. She just seemed to be there quite often just to spend time there. Okay. Was there any reports of anyone seeing any, like, fights or altercations that night? No, not at all. Wow. Um, did anyone see Mary in the parking lot? Yeah, so several of the patrons and the the bartenders or barmaids at the time is what they were called. Um, they all said they saw her walking out to the parking lot that night she went missing. Okay, so she did she ever make it to her car? That's that's kind of undetermined. Okay, um, so there was quite a few people that actually saw Mary there and in the parking lot. Yeah. Okay, and so. The owner, she had been dating, right, previously before? Fred, yeah. Yeah, Fred, the owner. So they had broken up, though, right, before? I believe so. That's what the reports say, that they were broken up at that time. So Fred, the owner, was at the bar that night. Yes, he was. And did he have an alibi? He did. He was interviewed, and he did give an alibi for uh, several hours while... uh, the time frame where she went missing. Okay. Do you know anything about Mary and Fred's relationship? Yeah, they, um, the stories are hard to decipher exactly, but they were, sound like an in and on and off again relationship. Um, and they, they had ended the relationship a week or several weeks before her death. Did they, do you know how long they were together? 
I believe it was around a year, but that may have been the time that she just worked at the bar was around a year. Around a year, so it could have been like... Less than that, possibly. Okay. So what was his take on her murder? Like, like, was he shocked? Was he, you know... I, I hate to say that I feel like he's probably a suspect in my brain just because that was her last relationship that I am aware of. Um, but did he, how was his reaction, do you know, to her murder? So it's kind of hard to decipher that in the interviews that were done at the time um, because he had that alibi. He wasn't questioned very much. Do you know where, like, where did he, because if he was there earlier that day, then all of a sudden he just went out of town that night? Yeah, he did. He had, uh, he went to a union meeting in Dearborn. Interesting. Suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so who who reported her missing and why? Um, So this was a a guy she had recently met and started dating uh, about a week prior. He's the one that reported her missing. He hadn't seen her in a few days. Okay. So she was seeing this new guy, and he reported her missing. Interesting. I didn't know about him. So in the days that Mary was missing... Was there any investigation done, and if so, what? Yeah, there was a lot, um, which is very rare, actually, for a missing adult woman. Um, Yeah. The Saline Police Department really did a great job. There was helicopter searches. There were search parties. People were looking for her. Okay. I'm like, yeah, because I feel like typically if you're an adult and you go missing, especially back then, Mm -hmm. they'd be like, you know, she's an adult. She can wherever she wants but her car was still in the parking lot that night right in the same spot she had parked yes it was interesting um when she was found was there a lot of tips that came in that you know of there was it was a small town if you know anything about Celine, it's a small town the the bar was where all the locals went um Everybody heard something, saw something. Many of the patrons were questioned, so there were a lot of tips to follow up on and various suspects that were brought up throughout the the years of the investigation. Interesting. How many, this is a weird question, like how many evidence items do you have or were sent in or both? We have probably, I would say over 80, maybe close to 90 evidence items for this case. and. So many of them have gone to our lab for testing, and so many of them have gone multiple times. I have 10 to 15 items there right now. That's crazy. So was there a lot collected at the actual scene? Yeah, so even though it was the 80s, they still did a really good job of taking photos, um, taking items that were found around her body. Yeah. Um, Was she found fully clothed? All of her clothes were on, but it, they were distorted and moved around. Okay. Was there any evidence of sexual assault? So that's something that a case like this, you always assume or you always have to prove or disprove okay. uh, with it being a woman and, you know, murdered the way that she was. Uh, we haven't been able to prove or disprove that okay. at this point. Interesting. Um, was she 
I think I saw that she was stabbed, but was there any other um, injuries? Like, was she beaten and stabbed? Was there anything else that happened? There was. There was uh, quite a bit of trauma to her body, and, yeah, she was stabbed quite a few times. Is that what was, like, her cause of death was the stabbing? Do you know? I believe the cause of death was from the stabbing, but I can't. I can't remember exactly. Uh, you know what the death certificate would say. Okay, no problem. Was there anything else remarkable about the crime scene that you're allowed to share? Yeah, I mean, it was a mile or less from the bar that she was last seen. So that's something that's really interesting to investigators. You know, how did she get there and those kind of things. I was kind of wondering about that. Like, I'm like, do you think that she, like, had to, like, run away? Do you think she was, like, forced there? I'm sure there's not, I I don't know. What's your, I guess, opinion on that? What do you think? You know, kind of the same as you. I have all these theories on that, too, because it being a mile away in October, she could have walked. She could have ran. Hitchhiking was a big thing in the 80s. Um, That's why we have so many cold cases today, because of hitchhiking, unfortunately. Um, And she could have gotten in somebody else's vehicle. There's so many unknowns. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, because in my brain it was just, you know, did she, like, was she attacked in right in the parking lot there or yeah I didn't even think of the possibility that she could have gotten a ride from someone or hitchhiked yeah wow that kind of gives me a like a whole new perspective on the case so since she was only she was only found a mile and a half right a mile mile and a half from where her car was did they do search like searching around the air like around that area specifically yeah there was there was quite a large perimeter search to look for you know any items or weapons or anything that could help um bring light to what happened to her and they didn't find her until it like because it was like two hunters that stumbled upon her right that's correct yeah. okay um do you feel like she was killed in that location or do you think she was dumped there that's hard to tell um the positioning of uh how her body was and uh the things found there at the scene it, it's really hard to determine you know if, if she was moved or if that's where uh, she was killed okay who was her biggest advocate in her case like who consistently followed up to try to find, like, what happened to her? You know, there was a lot of people. Um, her family was a big presence at the time, and with it being such a small-town community, um, homicide wasn't prevalent in Celine. It's it's not prevalent in Celine. so uh, the community was concerned, and they all advocated. They all wanted to find Mary and wow. find out what happened to her. That's good to know, because I feel like when I'm looking back and trying to see... You know, everything that happened to Mary, I really just wanted, I wanted to, I don't know, I was hoping to find somebody that was, like, really just still hoping for her case to be solved, but I I didn't really find anything. Like, nothing on Facebook, like, in a previous case, like, Kimberly Lewisell's case, they had, like, a Facebook page, Justice for Kimberly, just... I was hoping to find something along those lines for Mary just to keep it in today's, mm-hmm. you know, world. So I kind of I feel like we kind of went over this. She was kind of dating a new guy. Yeah. Interesting. But he was the one that ended up reporting reporting her missing? Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't just like, it wasn't her girlfriend that she had stayed at the night before. It was actually a guy that was seeing her. Was there, I felt like I heard something. Was Were they supposed to like go somewhere? The boyfriend and uh, Mary? Or, because I didn't really realize that they were dating up until um, 
they I believe they had some some travel plans coming up yeah um and that that sparked why he ended up reporting her yeah um because it was unlike her to leave for several days yeah um but yeah you're correct there was there was some kind of travel plans coming up okay so what do you think happened when she was killed like what what's your opinion maybe you know it's it's so hard to tell because we've had so many different suspects in this case mm-hmm. and with each suspect brings a completely different theory totally um you know you can you can say was it the random person that came from out of town or came, that she didn't know that you know grabbed her kind of that that stranger predator type situation or was it somebody that she knew yeah um someone that she was dating or had dated or just another patron at the bar um so really every suspect that we've looked into brings a completely different theory to mind yeah oh i can't imagine yeah i feel like just that one bit of information you gave or like the thought that she could have yeah in my brain it had to be somebody that was there with her that night but really when you think about it it could have been anyone although um i feel like stranger killings is that the word for it it's not What's the word for stranger? Like, you know what I mean? Like, random yeah. random killings aren't super common. It's, I think it's less, I would say, I anecdotally think it's less common now. But yeah. in the 70s and in the 80s, teenage girls and young women were hitchhiking and weren't so fearful as we are today. They weren't. You and I, you know, walking yeah. through a dark parking lot in the middle of the night, that's unheard of. Yes. That was what they did back yeah. then. That was common. So, you know, those things did happen. And without social media and, you know, the news sources, it we just didn't hear about it as much. So there wasn't as much fear of these, these strangers who yeah. were, you know, lurking in the woods like we're all taught about nowadays. Totally. I'm always looking over my shoulder, you know, (laughs) like I'm always thinking everybody's out to get me. So can you give me an idea where her case stands today? Like what's going on right now in the case? Yeah. So I don't know if you were aware of this, but I actually exhumed her body in November. Wow. Um, and that was, we've done so many interviews and, uh, Larry Rothman, who you actually interviewed on another case, he, uh, he's the one that had reopened this case and worked on it for a few years before I did. Um, and he did a lot of work. So one of the, the things that I felt was really important to do since we don't have, um, we don't have great DNA for this case. One of the things that I thought was important was to exhume her body and yeah. um, see if we could find that. So I, I did that in November with the help of a lot of people um, in the same Celine Police Department detectives and officers that worked on this case back in the 80s. Yeah. They actually came and helped out with the exhumation as well. They're still very involved. That's um, super cool. So everything that we collected from her body um, in November, that's all at the lab right now, waiting on some testing. Wow, that's really exciting. I mean, I know that's not like it's kind of a sad thing, but also mm-hmm. in hopes that hopefully it can be solved. I did have another question, but now I'm um, I'm blanking. That's exactly my question, actually. <laughs> I forgot to add that because um, Brian Ellicott, Mary's ex-husband, was he? ever questioned 
You know, I'm kind of drawing a blank on that right now. I I don't think he was interviewed because I can't think of any interviews that I've read or listened to in yeah. the last year involving him. Yeah. Um, I talked to Karen Holt, and she mentioned Brian, and I honestly didn't even make the connection that they were married because there's nothing about Brian in the media. And their divorce was finalized in June of 1981 so literally four months before mary went missing so i was kind of shocked that yeah i didn't really hear much about him i feel like as much as that's i mean he's now passed but i feel like that would have been a pretty important interview probably to do i mean maybe not in the grand scheme of things but um I don't know. Yeah, what's your what's your thought on that? Yeah, so it's that's that's the thing with cold cases that's hard is looking back and saying, "Oh, these detectives should have done this or yeah. should have done this" because they had to work with the information that they had at that time yeah. and it's very possible that they weren't aware of Brian yeah. or, you know, somebody said he's not in the picture or maybe he gave an alibi and it wasn't even, you know, an interview wasn't needed at that time. Yeah. So so that's what's hard with these cases is they're worked on so tirelessly and then we get new technology and updates in how our lab works and um, surveillance cameras and cell phones. So it's hard to say, yep, they should have done this because I still have cases today that I, I initiate and I think, oh, I should have done that a few yeah. months, you know, a few months later. Hindsight so, is yeah. definitely twenty twenty, unfortunately. Um do I have any other questions? Do you have any questions for me? Mm, no, I, I don't think so. Do you have anything else that you feel like you need to add? Or just before I end it, just in case? Um, I would add, um, I think it's really important what you're doing, talking about these cold cases on a podcast. Um, it brings light to the importance of getting these solved. Yeah. Um, and it really helps uh, family members who... Um, maybe they know about this case or maybe it's a, a different case and they're listening to your podcast to help get some insight on, you know, what they're going through. So I think it's really great that you're doing this uh, for the families and the victims. That's exactly, honestly, why I wanted to do it because I do think. And I, my what's more important to me and even just the case in general is just um, getting more information about the victim just because I feel like a lot of it is focused on the crime itself, but I feel like I was diving so deep to try to find more about Mary herself. Like, I, like what was her favorite color? What did she like to do? What did she do as a hobby? I tried really hard to find as much as I could on her, and I recorded the episode, and it was like tw 12 minutes. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to add this to the end of the episode just to add more content into it, but um, I... Definitely, I hope I can generate something positive to come from this. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate you um, agreeing to talk with me. And I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. I felt so grateful to interview Detective Sergeant Keely Shewitt. She was amazing and so kind and... I loved every part of our interview. Thank you guys so much for listening. But now it's time for our shelter shout out. This is where we bring a little light to the end of each episode where we shout out a shelter pet in need of adoption. All right, this is coming from the Livingston County Animal Shelter and 
This week they chose Minnie. Minnie, Minnow, Min Min, she's tiny but she's mighty gentle. Minnie's favorite part of the day is spending time with her humans. Whether that be walking, playing, snuggling, sitting in your lap, being with you in the car, following you to the restroom, she's got your back. Her kisses are gentle, her play is friendly. She walks like a dream, paying close attention to other animals that are out and about. She rides well in the car. She is a talker when crated though in the car, so she prefers to lay in the seat. She keeps her kennel neat and tidy. She loves meeting new people. Minnie is a little selective with her other doggy friends. She has a pushy, overbearing way about her. We recommend her being an only dog to start. With proper training and introduction, she could have another canine companion. She's been great with kids, and she's unknown with cats, but she is house trained. And remember, you get six weeks of free training with any adopted dog from the Livingston County Animal Shelter. Minnie is two and a half years old. She's a mixed breed. She's spayed. She's up to date on medical. She is heartburn positive but her treatment will be completed with Livingston County Animal Shelter at no cost to the adopter. So they sent me pictures of Minnie and I have to say I could just like eat her right up. She's so cute, she's got these cute pointy ears and they have a picture of her running and she looks so happy. Um, please just open your hearts, open your homes to sweet little Minnie. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up this episode on Mary Alice Hedgelin Ellicott. Thank you guys so much for listening, and don't forget to stay tuned for our shelter shout-out at the end of this episode. Also, please don't forget to press that download button and to follow and like Cold Cases with Cassie on Facebook and Instagram. All music in this episode was created by Eric with Bob is Cobb. You can follow him on Instagram and Bandcamp. That's B-A-H-B-I-S-S-C-O-B-B. Thank you guys. Love you.